0: Well, good morning. good morning. Last fall, uh, Pastor Roger and I had the privilege of going to East Africa to be a part of a, a leadership conference there. And one of my favorite speakers at this conference was a pastor from Uganda. And he got up there and, and he preached in a, in a T-shirt, so I already liked him from the jump. And the shirt that he, he spoke in on the front, it had the name of the church And on the back, it had the the phrase church begins on Monday. And I remember seeing that and thinking, yes, that is exactly right. Because you see the word church that you see in your New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. And it just means gathering. It's an assembly. It's those who have been called out and gathered together. And so in other words, Church is not a building. It's not an address. It's not an event. It is a people. It's the people of God. And when we just think of church as a Sunday thing, we lose sight of its purpose. And we lose sight of the role that we are called to play as part of it. Because the church consists of individuals that God has called out of the world by his grace to send them back into the world with his power. That's the church. It's individuals that God has called out by his grace in order to send them into the world by his power. And so when you think of like ancient Israel and their evangelistic mindset, they would lean more towards this idea of come and see. A very unique culture. A monotheistic religion in a time of polytheism. Their, 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 their calendar, their diet, all these things are really going to set them apart. And you have these people called God-fears who be like, what is going on over there? Come and see. As the church rolls around, the mentality is going to shift a little bit to go and tell. Go and tell. We are people who, who gather to scatter. That is the church. We gather to scatter. We gather on Sunday mornings at a place like Wayside Chapel for corporate worship, for the teaching of the word, to partake in the ordinances, to experience fellowship. We gather in order to scatter every other day of the week. That is the rhythm of the church. That's the way God has designed it. And we see that right away here in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 10. As Jesus sends out the 70. So if you'll turn there this morning, we'll be in verses 1 through 24. And this is what it says It says, Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Now, just real quick, you may see in your Bible a note there that says that some of the ancient manuscripts say 72. Or you may actually be holding a translation like the ESV, for instance, that chose to translate it 72. But I think there's good reason, textually and theologically, that the NASB has chosen to translate it as 70. Either way, it doesn't impact the story. It doesn't impact what's going on in the passage. It says in 8, And Jesus sent them out in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So, one thing to understand is that while Jesus had twelve apostles, he had many disciples. Disciple just means a learner. There are many followers. So he has an inner three of the apostles, and then he has the 12 apostles, and you just kind of have concentric circles moving further and further out. So here he, we have 70 disciples that Jesus has hand-selected, he's appointed, and he has sent them out on some short-term mission trips. And he sends them in pairs to villages and towns that Jesus is going to visit in the future. And right away he, he's casting vision for these guys, and he tells them three things right off the bat. The first thing he tells them is, look, there is a harvest out there. Like the harvest is plentiful. Like there are people in those towns, they're just waiting for you. They're just waiting to hear about the gospel of the kingdom. And that is the message that you're going to be bringing. And so that's the first thing he tells them. The second thing he says is that this is an endeavor that needs to be saturated with prayer. That prayer is at the heart of what you're about to do. Prayer is the engine that's going to push this thing along the way. Because he says that while the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. And he says, beseech, pray, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the harvest is plentiful. Prayer is going to be essential. And then thirdly, opposition is guaranteed. Opposition is guaranteed. Because they're going into enemy territory. They are are lambs sent to go into the midst of wolves. And I I want you to notice something here that you may not have seen before, and I really just saw it this week during my study, is that Jesus is sending out 70 guys. That's that's quite a few. And as he sends out these 70, at the same time, he is saying, we need more laborers. We need more more labors and so the question then arises well where are these laborers going to come from and here's the beauty they are going to come from the laborers who labor to reach them they are going to come from the laborers who labor to reach them in other words the way you get more labors for the gospel is to labor to reach people with the gospel So those who have been redeemed by God's mission are enlisted in God's mission. Those who are recipients of God's grace become ambassadors of God's grace. Those who have been reached because others labored are now called to labor to reach others with the gospel. This is the flow. This is the church. And and there's great power in this. I I was reminded of this a few months ago. As I was uh, watching the Winter Olympics, which took place in South Korea, we have a kid from O'Connor High School where I used to teach who was on the uh, bobsled team. I mean, classic, right? kid from Holotus, Texas on the U.S. bobsled team. And so it was in South Korea. And if, and if you research South Korea's religious history, it's really pretty fascinating. Around the year 1900, South Korea's population was roughly 1% Christian. That's it. But through the efforts of those who labored to reach South Korea with the gospel, and because of the efforts of the, the churches within South Korea, those indigenous churches that labored to reach their fellow countrymen with the gospel, the gospel exploded in the 20th century. And now, roughly one third of South Koreans' population is Christian. As a matter of fact, in 2017, South Korea sent out over 27,000 missionaries to 170 countries, including the U.S., which means that South Korea sent out more missionaries than any country in the world besides the United States of America. And that is a country that in 1900 was 1% Christian, but labors labored to reach And and without question, that takes the spirit of God and a work of God to bring about that much fruit. People have labored in a lot of places and not experienced that much fruit. I mean, God's got to open up the faucet, so to speak, and let the waters of, of salvation rush through. But what does happen is when the church commits to laboring for the gospel, not just around the world, but in their backyard, when they labor for the gospel, God tends to raise up laborers for the gospel. And so this is the vision that Jesus is casting for the disciples. And now he goes into some instructions regarding the mission, starting in verse 4. He says, Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So Jesus gives them the instructions and he says, hey, travel light, boys. Leave your suitcase at home. You're not going to need it. Rely on the benevolence of the communities that you go into. Ultimately, rely upon God. And when you enter into these communities, when you go there, you're going to pronounce a blessing. And and you're not going to get entangled. And when he says, do not greet anyone, he's not telling them to be rude. In this culture, in the ancient Near East, some of these greetings could go on for days. So he's saying, don't get distracted. Lock into your mission. Put blinders on. Go to work. Go to a place and pronounce blessing. Pronounce the truths of God and the gospel of the kingdom. And wait for the response. And if the person in the house, if if that person responds to you, then that's telling you that's a person of peace and you're going to sink your roots in there. You're going to pitch your tent. And that's going to be your home base. And you're going to minister to that family. You're going to minister to that household. You're going to minister in that area. And this is this idea of, of this person of peace, which is still applicable to us. Identifying that person of peace that we can connect with with the gospel. Now, the, one of the questions arises, well, how do I know who a person of peace is, right? I mean, it'd be nice if they had it tattooed on their forehead. P.O.P., that's my guy, right? But that's, that's obviously not the case. So, so who is a person of peace? A person of peace is someone who is receptive to the things of God. They're receptive to the truths of God. You're speaking to a group, they lean in. You're speaking to a couple people, and when it's done, they're hanging around because they want to ask you a question. They they have follow-ups. They want to know more. They are receiving the things of God. So then the question becomes, well, how do I know if they are receptive to the things of God? you got to tell them you have to share the things of God with them or you're not going to know and when you share the things of God you will see who is receptive to the things of God I had a, a wonderful seminary professor that just went to be with the Lord recently named Dr. Stanley Toussaint he taught at Dallas Seminary for about 200 years and uh I got to sit under Doctor Toussaint, and one day he was talking about evangelism and sharing your faith. And he was just talking to the students about it. And he he told them, "Guys, this is my mindset." He says, "When I talk to people, I kind of imagine like they are like they're they're the empty these empty barrels, and some of these barrels have gunpowder, and some don't. But I can't see inside the barrel." And so I don't know who has gunpowder and who doesn't. And it's not my job to look in the barrel. My job is just to light matches and throw them. That's what I do. I light matches and I throw them at the barrels. And some of them, the matches hit and nothing happens. But some of them, the match hits and that thing explodes with passion and fire for the Lord. And those are the ones you follow up with. Those are the ones... You sink roots down and you, that is your person of peace that you're looking to meet with. Jesus says, remain with them, invest in them, disciple them. Because the Lord has shown you that they have an interest in the things of God. Jesus is the master teacher, guys. I mean, he is the master discipler. This is discipleship 101. He has taught them the truths of God. He has modeled for them the truths of God. And now he is sending them out that they might experience it for themselves. It's the the next step in the discipleship pathway for Jesus because Jesus understands something, that at the end of the day, you have to move beyond the classroom to grow. You have to go to grow. And there's only so much that head knowledge can do. There's only so much benefit that observation can provide. You've got to put it into practice. You've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to fall on your face and get up again. You've got to experience it for yourself. And this is true of any real endeavor, not just the Christian life. You know, I could go on to Amazon.com and buy countless books on fitness and exercise. And those books come in my mailbox, they come on my doorstep. I'm excited. I rip open the box. I'm like, wow, 101 exercises to get you ripped. (laughs) Sweet. So I sit on my couch and I spend four hours reading it. And then I put it down and I go to bed. I'm going to be in shape, but it's not the shape I'm going for. You with me? You've got to put it into practice. You've got to apply that which you have learned because that is when change happens. That's when growth takes place. And the same is true for our faith. We've got to take risk. We've got to step out of the boat. We've got to share our faith. That's part of how we grow. And there will be opposition. There will be rejection. Jesus promises it. And he tells the 70, starting in verse 10, you better be ready for it. And he even gives them how to, instructions how to respond when the rejection comes. Starting in verse 10. He says, But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorason. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, a lot could be said here. But Jesus does not mince words, does he? He, he is telling the 70 that when you go to these towns and they reject you, you let them know that they are rejecting the kingdom. And and judgment is going to be harsh because they know better. The revelation is better. And yet, in the rejection, they will be rejected. So, it's harsh stuff. And and as I was reading that this week, I was reminded of a couple things. One, just the the utter reality of the brutality of, of rejection and the consequences of rejecting the offer of the gospel. And the second thing it, it, it reminded me of is the fact that we will be rejected when we share the gospel. It will happen. And that's hard. And I know it's hard. And, and I don't like it. I, I like being liked. I would imagine you do too. We don't get pumped up about rejection. Especially when that rejection involves people that are close to us or people that we love. And yet, part of of taking the gospel forward is experiencing rejection. It's part of laboring. And it really should not surprise us, right? Because we follow a Savior who was nailed to a tree. We follow the incarnate Word who was whipped and spat upon. So it should not shock us that rejection may be part of our journey as well. And yet with that in mind, we must avoid what I see as as two common mistakes. These are mistakes that revolve around being afraid to share our faith or afraid of rejection. And and the first of these mistakes is, is that you come to a place where you never share your faith. You never talk to people about the things of God. And look, if you never share your faith, you're right. You won't risk people's rejection of you, but what you will risk is God's rejection of them. You you will not risk their rejection of you, but what you will risk is God's rejection of them. And that is a powerful and painful rejection. Secondly, a mistake that a lot of people make is they alter the gospel. They want to make it a little bit more palatable. They want to make it a little bit less offensive. And so they alter the nature of the gospel. But we cannot do that. We cannot change the gospel. Now, we are to be persuasive. We are to be engaging. Paul, Look at Paul throughout the book of Acts. That guy is extremely persuasive. I mean, we are to use every means necessary to share the gospel and yet not lose that which is necessary, which is the gospel. So we use every means we can to present the gospel, but in the process, we cannot lose the gospel itself. We cannot do that. Or we're just presenting them with a bunch of nothing. And that's what they'll get. And so this brings us to the question of, okay, well, what exactly is the gospel? What exactly is the gospel? I mean, if we have been those who have been called, we are gathered to scatter, we are to go and tell and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, then it's probably pretty important we have a grasp on what exactly the gospel is. And here's the thing, I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm just going to be transparent it is amazing how many people, even just recently, that I have met with or talked to who have grown up in the church or who attend a church, and they have no clue how to explain the gospel. And that is tragic. And I'm not here to call anyone out or make anybody feel bad. That is not my purpose. But you should be able to explain the gospel and i know some people struggle with talking about their faith and i understand that we want to come alongside and help equip you and so there's some people this morning they're like i can drop i can talk about the gospel on the drop of a hat no big deal i know there's others people in here other people in here you know the gospel i mean you've, you believe in jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins but you don't know how to explain it or talk to it about with somebody and then, look, we have about 1,000 people in here, and I guarantee you there's people sitting in this sanctuary right now. You don't know the Lord. You don't know the gospel. And so I, I wanted to really take some time and, and, and just unpack what it means to, to talk about the gospel, what it means to share the gospel, what that might look like. Because people often ask me, Michael, what's the best way to share the gospel? And I always say there, there is no best way. There is no magic formula. There is no perfect method. The best way to share the gospel is to become so familiar with the gospel, to become so comfortable with the gospel, to become so enamored with the gospel that you are able to adjust to whatever situation God brings in front of you. A variety of people, a variety of time to share, a variety of circumstances, and you're ready to go. It it almost reminds me of playing uh, golf. I watched the Masters, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, and you see golfers go around and they've got tons of clubs in their bag. Why? Because different types of circumstances make them use different types of clubs. And they'll line it up and say, that's a seven iron. Or they're in the sand and they need a pitching wedge. Or they're on the green and they need a putter. They don't use the same club for every shot. They adjust to the circumstance. We've got gospel clubs When you become so familiar with the gospel, you can adjust to the circumstance and be able to enter into the conversation knowing what club you need and what that person needs to hear. And so when I share the gospel, I typically anchor it around five things, and they all begin with an S, so they must be true. (laughs) Right? You know, pastors, alliteration is beautiful. And and the five S's that I'm going to anchor the gospel in are these. The first one is serenity. The second one is sin. The third one is separation. The fourth one is Savior. And the fifth one is salvation. And so how long I spend on each one of those is going to depend on the circumstance. It's going to depend on the amount of time I have. But those are the five things I'm going to touch upon every time. That's what I'm going to unpack. And so when it comes to serenity, I'm going to say, I'm going to tie it to creation. I'm going to go back to the beginning. And I'm going to say, hey, here's what I believe. And guys, this happens. I was getting my hair cut the other day. This guy's cutting my hair. And he says, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. And he goes, you know, someone once told me that we are all spiritual beings covered in flesh. I said, let me tell you what I think. It's probably why he went a little high on my fade, you know. (laughs) Probably should have left that till the end, but... But we, all, we have opportunities like this all the time. So I'll talk about serenity and connect it to creation. And I'm going to say, hey, I believe God created everything. Like there's a God of the universe, and He created everything. Everything that you see. When you go to the Rocky Mountains, you look at the mountains, when you see a sunset or a sunrise, I mean, that is God's handiwork. And He created You know what He says in the Bible? He said, it is good. But He saved this best for last, right? Because the Bible tells us that he created humanity, but he he created humanity unique because he he created humanity in his image. You you have the image of God on you. You have the fingerprints of God. And my friend, that is why you have worth. That is why you have value. That is why there's dignity to life because you were made in the image of God and you were made to be in relationship to God. So boom, I've established it is good. They have value. What is their purpose? But now we're going to get to what went wrong. So that's sin. And so I'm going to say, but but something happened, right? Something entered into our world, and that relationship which we were created for was shattered. And and the Bible calls this sin. And sin is anything we say, think, or do that goes against the will of God. And sin entered entered in through our ancestors long ago, but it's infected and impacted every single one of us. And you know that. I mean, just just look at the newspaper. Just turn on the news. Just look at your alerts on your phone. You know the world is messed up and the world is not as it ought to be. But then I'll make it personal and I'll say, but even more than that, you don't even need to look at that stuff, do you? Because you know in your heart of hearts when you're completely honest and you look in the mirror, you know that you're broken as well. That you are not as you ought to be. And, and my friend, neither am I. And because I'm a pastor, it doesn't matter. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there's no one righteous, not one. So now we, we've unpacked what sin is. So what's the result of sin? Well, that's going to be separation. And I'm saying the reality is that sin has led to separation. That relationship we were created for has been severed. And you may ask why. I mean, if God's so loving, why am I, why am I separated from him? Well, because this loving God is holy. And let me ask you something. If if there were a judge in the courtroom and they continually let guilty people free, would that be a righteous judge? Well, no. Well, God is our perfect and righteous judge, and he has to judge sin as a holy God. And, And the big problem is this separation that's come from sin. We can't do anything about it. There's no man-made cure. There's no amount you can give. There's no amount of good works you can do. It doesn't matter your church attendance. We are separated. I mean, it's, it's like if I offered you a glass of water, but then I put some, a drop of rat poison in it. I said, go ahead, drink. And you would say, no. Because the water has been contaminated. And it doesn't matter if there's one drop of poison or 50. The result is the same, is that the water is poisoned. And our sin has separated us from God. And our only solution is for God to come and fix our problem. And so, my friend, you and I need a Savior. So now we're on Savior. Now we're going to unpack who Jesus is. And so God did what he could only do. He took on flesh. He became one of us. Fully God and fully man. This Jesus Christ born in a manger. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And he walked this earth. And he he was like us except without sin. He lived a perfect life. And yet as a result for that perfect life, he wasn't honored and rewarded. He was crucified. You see, our Savior Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross where he died for our sin. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus paid that penalty so that through faith, we might be restored to him. Because here's the deal. He didn't stay dead. He wasn't just a good man. We have to hit the resurrection. You have to hit the resurrection. He wasn't just a good man who was a moral teacher who stayed in the tomb. He was the Lord of the universe who conquered death and rose from the grave. And a movement began that day, my friend, in this little speck of Israel that has canvassed the entire world and that message has come to you today. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you are in the scheme and the scope of life, but here's what I do know. There is a God who created you for a relationship. There is the Father. There is a God who came to redeem you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will turn to him, Not do these eight things, not do all these sacraments, not live a perfect life, but if you will turn to him and place your trust in him, the Bible says that he will remove our sin as far as the east is from the west, that you will move from the kingdom of darkness and be transferred to the kingdom of light, that you will pass out of death and into life, where you might experience the fullness of life now and eternal life to come when you go to be with your creator where sin will be No more. So that is the gospel. Serenity, sin, separation, Savior, salvation. And as I'm going about it, what I'm trying to do is also answer the four major questions of life that all of us have to deal with. All of us have to deal with the question of origin where are we from? The question of purpose why am I here? The question of morality how shall I live? And the question of destiny, what happens when I die? The gospel answers all of those. The deepest longings of their heart, the deepest questions that they have, the gospel stands behind all of it. And I want to make sure I present that when I talk to people. So once again, you don't need to copy my method, but copy the gospel. Put in your own illustrations. Go about it your own way, but don't lose the gospel and don't fear rejection because though rejection will come, so will reception. And those people that you labor to reach, some of them will be co-laborers with you. And that is amazing. That is amazing. And that is why even though the 70 experienced rejection, look what they say when they come back in verse 17 says, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Can't you just feel their excitement? And they're fired up. They're pumped. Why? I'll tell you why. And this is the key to the entire morning. So listen to this. They are excited because they have moved from spectator to participant. That's why they're excited. They have moved from an observer to a participant, and their joy has been unleashed. You guys know that I coached football for seven years. You probably can't tell sometimes. That, And uh, I had a lot of great memories from coaching football, but one of my favorite came from a, a day in early November 2007. We played Warren High School. For the district championship, they were number one in the city. We were like number two or number three. And it all came down to this Saturday afternoon. It all came down to the last minute. It all came down to the last drive. It all came down to the last play. So we score a touchdown. We're down by one, and we go for two. And Coach Padrone calls in the play. right right, eight boot, X flag back. And so our quarterback, Bruno Reno, snaps the ball. He fakes counter to Jarrell Miner. He rolls right, defensive end comes. He's got a bubble back, and in the corner of his eye, he sees his best friend, Sean Lunchnick, our stud receiver who went to play at Penn State, and he throws the ball blind to the corner of the end zone, and Sean Lunchnick runs, and with one toe right there, he stabs the ball, and O'Connor wins. District championship. Celebration on the field. Celebration in the bus. I mean, it's all a blur, We get back to the locker room, I mean, just tears, guys are hugging, guys are dancing, guys are singing, guys are jumping up and down because of what we got to experience together. I mean, the joy that filled that place was incredible because we knew everything that had gone into it, and it was a wonderful day. And when when I left coaching years later, my first year out of coaching was when, uh, I stopped coaching football, but I kept watching a little bit of football, and I like to watch my beloved Aggies, who do not always love me well. But that year they did. In 2012, they were amazing. Johnny Manziel wins the Heisman. They have this incredible season, including one of the great victories in school history, where they beat Alabama, who's the number one team. And I watched that game in my living room. And when A&M won, man, I was excited. I really was. But then I got depressed. Because I sat in my living room and I I realized I did not participate at all in this victory. I just watched it on my TV. And though the stakes were bigger, I mean, it was national television. And that game was played in front of 100,000 people, not at at Northside Stadium in front of 10,000 people. It didn't matter because I participated in the one at Gus Stadium. I did not participate in the one in Alabama. And my joy was so much greater when I was in the locker room instead of when I was in my living room. Because the joy of participation will always defeat the joy of observation. But we have to take that step. And if you are here this morning, the reality is that you are a participant in the mission of God. If you're redeemed by God's grace, you are a participant. You are enlisted into the mission of God. But how you experience that victory, and you are victorious in Christ. The Bible says you're an overcomer. But how you experience that victory will be greatly impacted by how much you participate in it. I'm just going to be honest. You will be victorious from a distance And be able to watch it on TV or you will be victorious and experience it because you are in the arena. And that is where we are called to be. And so the 70 are excited and so is Jesus. In verse 18, he says, I was was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So Jesus, he, he, what he does here is he references Isaiah 14, which is a famous passage that deals with the, the falling of Satan. And so what, essentially what he's saying is, guys, while y'all were out there, and while y'all were just, just functioning in the power of the spirit, and you're casting out demons in my name, it was like Satan's falling from heaven. It was like when Satan fell. Every time you're casting out a demon, it's just a reminder, Satan has fallen. We are victorious in Christ. But he reminds them that in the midst of the power and the big show, don't forget that your greatest reward is that your name is in the book of life. It's not what you've done. It's not the power that I've given you. Your greatest reward is that I've given you eternal life. And that is the source of all joy. And then in verse 21, I love this. It says, at that very time, he, being Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him it's that's a whole sermon right there but it is a beautiful text i mean look at it again it says that jesus is rejoicing in the holy spirit and as he's rejoicing he praises the father for the father's great plan of salvation where he sent the son by the power of the spirit to die for sin That those who had placed their faith in the Son by the work of the Spirit would be restored to the Father. It's just magnificent. And Jesus is overwhelmed with joy when he recognizes what it is that God has done. And it's a reminder to us that salvation is always by grace. And it's a work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Jesus ponders this truth, he closes by reminding the disciples of just how blessed they are. it's a great place for us to close this morning. In verse 23, it says, Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. So Jesus stops for a second. He turns to his people and he he just says, you have no clue how blessed you are. You have no idea how blessed you are. And I think those words are applicable to us today, 2,000 years later one of the greatest sins in my life, and I would imagine one of the greatest sins in your life, is a lack of gratitude towards God. And that lack of gratitude robs us of our joy in the Lord. It robs us of our passion. One of my favorite quotes is by a guy named William Law. He said, The greatest saint in the world is not he who prays the most or fasts the most. It is not he who gives alms or is most excellent for temperance chastity or justice it is he who is most thankful to God because when people experience gratitude towards God what they also begin to experience is a passion and commitment to live for God and as that passion and and commitment wells up inside of you that is birthed from your gratitude it moves you from a place, place of spectator to a place of participant in the mission of God, which is the mission of the church, which is our mission. Of those, as those who have been called out by his grace and then sent into the world by his power. We gather to scatter. We go and tell. And like Jesus who sent out the 70 years ago, we go out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom with joy and with praise because of what god has done for us so let's be faithful wayside let's be faithful and not be fearful let's pray heavenly father we thank you for this morning god we thank you that you have you have wired us in such a way that you have designed us in such a way that we need one another and that you have wired us to gather as your people and, and how special it is to, to come here together on a Sunday morning and we sing praises to you and we hear the, your word taught and we see people whom we love and who love us. And we, and we know that we're at home with family. And it is so good to be home with family. But this is not where we're called to stay. Because you've called us to exit these doors. Not to then count down until the next Sunday, but exit with a mission in mind, with a purpose. Because church does not end when the last note is struck. When the church is the people of God on the mission of God. And so Lord, would you ignite in us a passion for the lost? Would you ignite in us a desire to share? Would you ignite in us a boldness? Does not let the fear of rejection Paralyzed, the glorious truth of the gospel which we hold to be true. So God, I'm asking you to stir in our hearts. We are but a, a small little church in, 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 a, in a small part of the world at a single speck in time, but you have called us to something grand. Your mission, to make disciples, to move mountains by your power And so, God, as those who have been called out of the world by your grace and sent into the world with your power, may we go boldly and confidently, knowing that though we may experience rejection, we are received and accepted by the God who created us. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you. Move in us in a mighty way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.